0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Steve Ewell, and our scripture reading today is Matthew 1913 through 2019. And that would be found on page 824 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 1913 through 2019. Then children were brought to him that he may lay hands on them. And pray the disciples rebuked the people but jesus said let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven and he laid his hands on them and went away and behold a man came to him saying teacher what good deed must i do to to have eternal life and he said to him why do you ask me about what is good there is only one who is good if you would enter life Keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the, po- give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, Judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life for many who are first will be last and the last will be first for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them to his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, the last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us by having borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear, for this is the word of the Lord.
1: It's good to see everyone again. Hey, my name's Chris, if we haven't met. i um, thankful that you're with us in the room. Let me just start by saying I think it's probably an understatement to say we have a complicated relationship with money. I mean, the world that we live in is really unprecedented. We have incredible wealth. Uh, With the way you look back over time in history, what we experience now, even when inflation is such and there's frustration at the grocery store, it's still on a baseline so much more than the world has ever known. And I say that just to say it's the reality that we live in. We live in a world where our government gives us stimulus checks to keep our economy afloat. So our consumerism is key to everything humming and working. That's super complicated to think about how do you understand your possessions. When you think about the wealth you've inherited, the wealth you're trying to leave to your kids, think about your ability to build wealth. What we're experiencing is really unprecedented. And it's not good or bad by itself, but, but we should just name it lest we blindly move into a passage like this, unaware of the fact that we are greatly shaped by a very, very unique situation in the time of history. And because I say that, it gives us a chance to lean into this text and ask, God, what might you say to us here? Maybe you've heard something like this, that the Bible talks more about money than anything else in all of scripture. I think it's probably more accurate to say the Bible uses money as an illustration to talk about spiritual things more than anything else. Because money is the thing that represents our ability to have power, to have comfort, to have some sense of control, to soothe ourselves, to get a sense of security, even prestige and ranking and how we see ourselves compared to other people. All of that is wrapped around money. So, of course, God would take that thing as a window into our souls and want to talk about the kingdom of God and talk about what it means to be truly wealthy and talk about what actually is going on inside of our hearts when we think about the war that exists there between God and money, Jesus says. So I name that because this text invites us into something that I think we need to engage, but, but maybe we have wobbly legs as we step into it. And I don't want to presume upon you like, how your legs are wobbly when it comes to money. Maybe it's a, a lack you have. Maybe it's a space of despair. It's a space of deep, deep longing. Maybe it's a place of, of, of waste, of regret, of loss. Maybe it's a place where you feel really dialed in and are very earnest. Maybe it's a place of anxiety. I, I don't know where you find yourself. But this text wants to speak to all of us. And with that idea that the text uses money to talk about spiritual things, what's amazing is we get a chance to actually do both. This is going to go after our heart. The text is actually about salvation, the reason why I had that entire section read is because it's about what it means to come into the kingdom, what it means to be saved. The, the rich young ruler asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that the man with money asks. And as Jesus engages with him and even tells this story of the vineyard and the daily wages, it's a story of salvation. So we get to talk about salvation. But it would, we'd miss a chance if we didn't also talk about the very near Context of the actual money that the man is dealing with. So, so because both those themes are here, we're actually going to take two weeks on this text. We're going to talk today about this major theme from the children all the way to Jesus' promise and his death, burial, and resurrection and talk about salvation. And then next week, we'll come back and spend some time just on the topic of money. Because it is so complicated for us, I want to serve you with a framework for how the scriptures talk about money. I think we need that as we think about how to go forward with a passage like this and and with things that are going on inside of our world. Because it is not just complicated, it's actually dangerous, the Scriptures say. There's a passage in 1 Timothy that says, But the one who desires to become rich will fall into temptation, and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains or griefs. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like as we think about money, we go, man, there's a lot of complication, but there's also tons of temptation. There's lots of pain and regret, and there's lots of things happening inside. So I want to speak to that from a gospel framework um, in the days ahead. But, but I think we'll be served if we can ground it in this larger understanding of salvation. This is actually a really sad story. It's a story of a man who gets to the edge of seeing where there's hope. He knows he's lacking something and he gets to the edge of it and he doesn't have the faith, the grace, the courage, the desire, the something to actually move all the way towards salvation. It's, a, it's actually a heartbreaking story. And the text will tell us this man has lots of kinds of capital. He's wealthy, which means he would have respect. He also is a righteous man. He obeys the law. So even as I'm talking about money, maybe you're going like, Whew, not for me. I'm living on college loans. This is not a sermon I have to pay attention to. Maybe you could just think about the kinds of capital you have, the kinds of wealth that you have relationally or experientially or financially or informationally. There's lots of ways we could slice that. So, so I want to just name all of that because I actually want to invite you to pray. I want to just ask you to sit for a moment with the Lord and ask Him to speak to you so you know where you're at. You know what's happening in your soul. Uh, Would you just bow your head with me for a moment? With that introduction, it's spiritual and it's physical. It touches everything about us. Would you just pray for like 20, 30 seconds, asking God to speak to you this morning about what is that thing you're carrying, dealing with, thinking about when it comes to money? Just pray for yourself for a moment, and then I'll pray over us, and we'll jump in the passage. Father, thanks for hearing our prayers. Spirit, thanks for being with us in these situations. Jesus, thanks for giving your life in such a way that there's hope for us, for all these things that we're carrying. Would you now open up our hearts and our minds to receive from you? I pray for it like a, a hopeful humility that would let us humble ourselves enough to hear and receive, but it would be grounded in hope. What you want to give us is life, eternal life something beautiful, so would you, would you help us lean into that? And for all the barriers and the objections, the same way this rich young man faced lots of obstacles, those will be shouting at us this entire morning. So would you quiet those things, Holy Spirit, we ask, so we can hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let me just give you some handholds. I want to talk about two kinds of coming, two ways of coming to Jesus that we'll see. And then we'll see a, a confusion. We'll see a correction And then we'll look at the cross. So so two comings, then there's uh, confusion, correction, and the cross. Look with me in verse 19. First is the children coming to Jesus. What we're going to see is a contrast between children that represent the most vulnerable, the weak, the most dependent, and this rich man who comes, which would represent the most powerful, the most independent, the most self-sufficient. And so they both come, which is beautiful to think about Jesus welcoming everyone but this first scene we see children are brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and bless them and pray for them this would be customary for a rabbi to um, bless children and then you watch the disciples which we've been watching for several chapters now they're watching what's going on as the kingdom is being expressed and they they misread it they don't know what to do with it they get nervous about it they feel entitled to something so they actually rebuke the people that strike you as strange? This is such a a beautiful scene. These are all the little children of the world coming to Jesus. And his closest disciples begin to rebuke the people. Maybe they're getting in the way. Maybe it's because they're insignificant. Maybe Jesus is in a hurry, they think. But Jesus is actually happy to stay there with them. Look in verse 14. He says, Jesus says to them, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And this idea of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and salvation and eternal life and treasure in heaven is going to be all over this text. It's the first kind of coming. Jesus is saying, let them come to me because it belongs to people like this. Salvation belongs to people like these children, not just children. Do you see that in the text? People such as these to come to Jesus as one who embodies childlike dependence, faith, understanding of their need, in that culture really having nothing to offer. You might even say only being like a liability, only having, having needs that somebody else had to meet. You didn't actually add a whole lot of value. Now, now kids, I, you add a whole lot of value. You're valuable to Jesus. God made you. This is not simply a metaphor for something spiritual. These are real children that Jesus sees and touches and cares about, and he blesses them. God sees you, kids and students, and He wants to bless you. You you matter to Him. But you know more than any of us probably what it feels like to have that sense of dependence. Mom and Dad tell you where to go. Mom and Dad tell you when to go to bed. Mom and Dad tell you when to do homework. Mom and Dad buy houses in neighborhoods that put you in certain schools. It affects your friendships and your sports and your activities and what you can and can't do. Everything is dependent. You are totally dependent. It's God's design. Your parents love to bless you and help you, but but you kind of embody something really beautiful spiritually. It's why what happens in Hope Kids every Sunday is so important. Even here we had 130 kids last week, and I think we had to turn a few away because we were over capacity, and it would be unsafe down there if we didn't. So in that space, you hear both like a, a beautiful opportunity. Our church is committed to blessing children. It's why, Stephen, what you've done is so important. What you've done with our kids and our youth has been beautiful, man. It has been like life-giving, not just to these children, but to these parents. The ways you've partnered and discipled and given your life in so many ways. Like the, the push point of all the growth has happened in all of your areas. And you've done a great job, man. So like, well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should bless the ones that bless the children. So Macy, Stephen, like, thank you. What you guys have done is awesome. And I'm super excited for this other church, even though I feel a little bit of something inside. Uh, I'm, I'm fired up for you and what's next and for you to do it again. But, but it, really, it really matters. So that's the idea. I want to say to you here, there's this dependence and there's this beauty, which is a portrait of salvation. So, so they come dependent. And Jesus says, yes, that is the way that you must come. And then in contrast, the second coming is, is this rich man. He hears Jesus say the kingdom belongs to these little children. He hears that, so he wants to go to Jesus and say, well, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I'm not a child. I don't embody that kind of dependence. So, so what must I do, he says in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? Now before you get hard on this guy, just for the way he asks the question, it would make sense in his world, right? There's a law that he was given from Moses that had instructions that were going to lead to life. So the question he asks isn't necessarily a bad question, but you can feel for him in the way he asks it because his whole life he's been producing. He's been doing. He's been accomplishing, right? He, He asks, what good deeds must I do? What do I have to do is the question. Not what do I get to receive, now what have you done for me? His framework is what marks his entire life. That he earns and he produces and therefore he has value and hope. So he comes as one who comes more sufficient, more put together, uh, with, with things kind of on the line. And as Jesus engages with him, it's a little bit confusing the way Jesus starts the conversation. He says, "Well, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you would enter eternal life, then, then do what you know to do, to keep, keep the commandments. It's a little bit confusing, and I think what Jesus is trying to do is help the guy break his paradigm a little bit, help him move past what he actually thinks already, his presuppositions Jesus kind of steps into. There's something really significant there about there being only one who is good. Hold on to that idea. Jesus is going to say there's only one God, one good God. And so when this man chooses not to do what the one who is truly good tells him to do that is a massive moment in this man's life there's only one way there's only one good there's only one god and jesus lays out for him a path to wholeness and he turns he turns away so he says to him keep the commandments and and the guy is an amazing dude he's a righteous guy he first asks which ones and so jesus quotes the second half of the ten commandments You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And then he summarizes that don't covet your neighbor's wife or house or possessions. He summarizes that as you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says to him, I've kept all of these. I was laughing this morning as I was praying for us. This would be like a candidate for the show Bachelorette or Bachelor, whichever one is the dude. I mean, he's wealthy, he's responsible he's probably good-looking at least he can afford to be good-looking like he's in spaces where this is a desirable position he's not just wealthy and a dirtbag he's wealthy and actually has been a righteous man he's upstanding in the community and there wouldn't have been a lot of wealthy people in those days so he's known he's famous he has respect and prestige and yet he still senses that there's a lack did you see that young man says to him all these things I've kept What do I still lack? If I've done all the things, then then why is it there's still this feeling inside that I need something more? And it's interesting when Jesus quotes the Ten Commandments, he leaves out the first four. Maybe you've seen that before, maybe you haven't. If you're familiar with Exodus 20, when God first gives the law to his people, there's actually ten commandments. Jesus quotes six of them here. But the first four are to have no other gods before God. to have have no idols, to not take the Lord's name in vain, and, and then to set aside the Sabbath day to remember your dependence and that you were a slave brought out of Egypt and that God rescued you. So set aside a day to rehearse the story of your creatureliness where you don't produce and add value and do more. You simply receive. It's curious that Jesus leaves those out. What he does name, though, we actually have seen him talk about before. So if you were to go back several chapters to what's called the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, where we were a long, long time ago, you'll see these themes of murder and adultery and coveting. You'll see those themes in the way he talks. And if you remember that era, what's going on is Jesus is not abolishing the law, but he's saying how he came to fulfill it. And there's a rhythm over and over again where he says, you've heard it say don't commit adultery, but, but I tell you that lust actually is in the same category. You've heard it say, don't, don't murder. But I'm telling you that if you have hate in your heart, if you, if you yell in anger to people, if you accuse and in insult, it's the same kind of thing. So Jesus is going at the heart in the Sermon on the Mount. And th- this question that he's asking about, what am I lacking, is a question about the heart. It's a question about, what am I experiencing? Why does this feel so hollow inside? I have all the stuff. I've done all the things why do I still have this lacking? And Jesus says in a really profound and fairly provocative way in verse 21, if you would be perfect, and that word is actually used in the Sermon on the Mount, when we talked about it, it's actually a word for wholeness. It's not a word for moral perfection. It's, it's a word for, for wholeness or completeness. It's where we get the word, the word telos there, the way something is designed to go and end for its true purpose. If, if you're going to actually be whole then go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, which he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And then come and follow me. Jesus doesn't mention those first four so that he can expose this man's heart in a loving way to invite him actually to receive, to say, hey, there is something that grips your heart. The Bible says don't have any gods, don't, don't, don't worship idols, make sure you're Sabbathing. In those spaces, honor God, His name, and who He is. And there's more than just the outward behavior. There's more than just the regulations and the rules. It's actually not that hard to keep the bottom six of the Ten Commandments. You you can almost physically do it. Which is why Jesus says it's actually deeper inside your heart. You can outwardly do those things and still feel very fragmented and disintegrated inside your soul, which is where this man is at. So Jesus says, if you want to be whole... Go and sell the other lover that you have. Go and sell the other thing that's captured your imagination. Go sell the other thing that actually has a grip on your heart and mind and soul and body. Go sell the other thing that you orient your life around. Go sell the other orbital center of your universe. Go get rid of that and then come and follow me because Jesus will not share his people with another lover. So when he says to this man, you have to go divest yourself of those things, there's something there for all of us. Although there's a particular kind of expression here for this man, this was the thing that gripped his heart. To the woman at the well, he says, go, go get your husband. And that, that exposes her heart. And this face is like, I wonder what question would expose your heart. What question would make you go, ooh, I mean, I, I want to have eternal life but I don't know if I wanna give this up to do that because this is how I've built my life. This is the way I understand my reality. It's the way I'm ranked, it's the way I'm seen, it's the way I accomplish, it's the way I deserve. It's how I actually navigate the world around me. I don't know, is it your reputation? Is it, is it soothing? Is it purchases? Is it your job? Is it, is it your family legacy? Is it your grandkids? Is it your pension? Is it the degree you're pursuing? Is it the job that's next on the horizon? Is it your spouse? Is it the fact that you're single and still okay? Like, What is it about you that you kind of are holding on to that you say, this is the thing that I'm most familiar with giving me identity and purpose and hope, right? Because that's what money offers. And Jesus just says, hey, you got to go break up with, divest yourself from, get rid of the thing that has gripped your soul. So friends, it's not a rhetorical question. I wonder what you would say honest before God. What, what, what grips your soul? And is it possible that you're coming to Jesus not like a child who knows I have nothing to offer, I'm utterly dependent? Or are you coming as one who has quite a bit? And you think Jesus could probably use what you have. He's probably happy to get you on the team. You have assets that we would actually benefit from. What Jesus does in this text as he goes forward is he flips our understanding of assets and liabilities on its head. And to those of us who have been used to being in relationships because we offered something because we had something to contribute this is actually a devastating at first even though it is incredibly liberating to think of being freed from that 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 abusive lover of money that's never satisfied that always demands more that always has a grip on your soul and you have the appearance of freedom but you feel so bound to it it's an abusive lover it's not a true lover so the devastating nature of what Jesus is saying is actually meant then to to liberate us but this man gets up to the line and we see in verse 22 the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions he did the math and the calculation and did the cost-benefit analysis and went I can't I can't give this up it would shipwreck me, it would, it would devastate me, it would actually bankrupt me if I did that. And there's something Jesus is doing here to invite all of us to consider where we find our wealth so that we can get to the place of declaring bankruptcy. So this is where he goes next. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, this man walks away in the, one of the saddest moments of the scriptures. He has the clarity, he has the desire, and yet there's this other lover that taunts him and won't let him go forward. Jesus says to his disciples, "'Truly I say to you, only with difficulty "'will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven.'" Hey, hear that. In a culture, in an area of town, in a midtown city, in a country where we actually have so much to hear, it's actually difficult for the wealthy to come all the way to Jesus the way he requires us to. It's not hard to be respectable, to do good things, so you might be admired. That's not hard at all to give money so people thank you and you can contribute to what's happening here. That's not hard at all. But to declare bankruptcy on everything that you might have had value in to bring just your exposed, dependent, childlike heart to Jesus. That is hard, he says. Not not impossible, but, but so hard. And just to drive it home, he says in verse 24. Again, I tell you, let me give you an illustration when I say it's hard, what I mean is it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. That's an impossible illustration. Throughout history, there's some funny stuff about how they've tried to explain how it's actually like a, a beautiful thing. No, Jesus is saying it's impossible, and you know that because when the disciples hear him say that, they say that's impossible. So look in verse 25. When the disciples heard that, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, then who can be saved? This is impossible. What you've just said is actually impossible, Jesus. And as you hear that, would you remember in the previous chapters the way the disciples have encountered teachings about the kingdom with this same response? Not only do they rebuke children that are coming to Jesus, but when he talks about marriage and the beauty of it and the devastation of divorce, they say, man, this is impossible. Who, who can live into that? It's better just to never get married. When, when Jesus talks in chapter 18 about forgiveness, they say, this is impossible. I mean, like, how many times do you want us to do this? Oh, oh, 70 times, seven times? Like, that's a whole bunch of times. This is impossible. And you go all the way back to chapter 16 where Jesus says, Hey, your biggest need will only be satisfied if I die on the cross. And they say, What? Impossible. Never let that happen. We will make sure that doesn't take place. Jesus says, Not only do I have to die, you have to die. And they just go, Oh, this is impossible. This is impossible. It's impossible to bring cachet, to to, to bring status, to bring any version of wealth, whatever category you want to bring it in, to think that those are the things that would actually inherit you, the kingdom of God. It's impossible. But would you see the next sentence? What's a, a beautiful build your life on sentence in verse 26? But Jesus looked at them. I love it, man. He looked at him and said, with man, with all your capacities, your abilities, what you could accomplish, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Dude, that's the space right there. Build your life on that. What you have capacity for, it's impossible to make it. You can't pull it all together. You can't keep it up. You can't hold it all in such a space that it's going to keep Working, it is impossible because you're a finite being dealing with infinite things, it's impossible. But with an infinite God, all things are possible. That's that's pointing to the gospel. Because this God who says all things are possible is the one who was willing to stand in your place on your behalf and die a death you deserved. He was buried, he rose again, he's coming to make all things new. In that space, you have this beautiful promise that what is impossible for you, God has made possible. Okay, two kinds of coming to Jesus. One that leads to life, that's marked by dependence and need and desire for something that they can't produce on their own. And one that's more calculated, more managed, more accomplished, has more assets, more more to offer, more to give. That actually ends in sorrow. I don't know how you've come to Jesus. I don't know how you were taught to come to Jesus. What you were told he needed from you. What you were told you contributed to him. But what Jesus is saying in this moment is you have to declare bankruptcy. You have to say, I have nothing. He says it like this earlier. You have to die to yourself to truly live. You have to actually die to yourself. Not to like part of yourself, to all of yourself. You have to die to yourself so that you can come to the one true king to be rescued and redeemed. And here's the deal. Apart from bankruptcy, we will keep trying to add value on our own. As long as you can, you probably still will try to. As long as you can kind of hold it together, as long as you can kind of get by, as long as you can close that deal and get that girl and move that space and get that soothing and hold it all together and pay off that card and make that promotion, as long as everyone around you doesn't catch on, as long as you can keep doing it, you probably will. So what Jesus says is it's a massive gift to come to a space where you realize you don't actually have anything. That, that what you actually possess you're, you're bankrupt even holding those things. This is the way the kingdom of God functions and works. It, it only comes that way. It comes through death. Jesus models that for us and he invites us into that. So again, in a world where you've been told since the time you could talk, that what people needed from you was for you to be responsible and amazing and follow the rules and do all the stuff and get the great grades and go to the right school, get the right job, marry the right person, get the right car, get the right house, live in the right neighborhood, get your kids in the right school so we can do all this whole thing all over again. That whole thing, Jesus says, declare bankruptcy on. Because until you do, you will keep leveraging that, thinking that is the thing that will save you. And just do some auditing of your heart right now. This week, When you found yourself anxious or angry, prideful, those would be good symptoms to ask. What was it around? I would guess there's something to do with money or the ability to get money or reputation around those things that was at the center of that. This means in the kingdom of God, when he flips things upside down, he's saying that your liabilities your weaknesses the things about you that you you wish were different the things you're praying God would change those things are actually a benefit to you because they expose and give a crack to reality where you actually see what it's like spiritually the places where you feel undone and overwhelmed and you just can't do it when you hit that space that's when you're ready to turn to Jesus for real. That's when you're ready to break up with this abusive lover, whatever you want to call her or him, physical or metaphysical. Whatever it is, we have to get to a space where you can no longer do it. And the faster that happens for you, as devastating as it is through earthly lenses in a heavenly sense, it is such a gift to you. To get bankrupt earlier in life lets you actually now move towards treasure that won't fade that happens in the kingdom. I just want to name that. I know you feel frustrated. You've prayed for God to change things. There's stuff about your world and your work and your relationships and your reality that you're begging God to make different. And what if those are exactly the things God's using to bring you to this place where you can no longer manage, you can no longer try to figure it out, you can no longer leverage and borrow from one to pay this thing off and go down 10 years on this one and come back this way and what if you actually had the space where you could see, dude, I, I literally can't do this anymore? That's the place where the one who does the impossible steps in. Like, what a beautiful thing he's saying. Okay, so so there's two kinds of coming. And then there's like some confusion. Of course, you're like, yes, we are confused. What, what are you actually saying? So let's just walk the disciples engaging with this, right? They first say, this is impossible. No one can actually do this. And then Jesus says, well, what's impossible for you is possible with God. And then watch this in verse 27. Then Peter says to him, well, see, we actually have left everything and followed you. What, what then will we have? You told that dude to sell everything. We, we did that. So now we trade a material kind of wealth for a commitment kind of wealth. Or, or a following through kind of wealth or a sacrificing kind of wealth Peter's wondering does he have what it takes because he followed through on that command and Jesus says to him truly truly I say to you this is mercy in the new world which man I just can't help but tell you this you see a little footnote there in the ESV that that word in the new world is only found one other place in the scriptures and it's in Titus chapter three it's the word for regeneration when God takes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh when God actually makes all things new, truly I say to you, when regeneration happens, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Okay, Peter's confusion is hey, what if there's a different kind of commodity I could bring to Jesus? What if instead of money, it was earnestness? What if instead of wealth, it had something to do with my, my dependence or my dependability or my, my follow-through? It is about your dependence. I misspoke. About your independence, about, about you being amazing. And Jesus just blesses them and says, yeah, everything you've given up, I promise it will be worth it in the next life. But look in verse 30. You have to understand The many who are first will be last and the last first. He's coming back to this kingdom idea of bankruptcy, coming back to this idea of dying to yourself. He's saying in the world around you, those that you see as first, even if it's a non-wealthy, spiritually motivated kind of first, if that's your firstness in that space, you have to be last. So now he's going to tell a parable to correct this. There's some confusion Here's the correction. The parable of the vineyards is Jesus' explanation to what he's saying about the first being last and the last being first. And maybe it's a story that you've heard. We just had it it read over us. It is the idea of a landowner who hires day laborers. Goes into the market. It's a very common scene. Goes into the market and finds someone at the first of light of day. 6 a.m. we'll say. 6 a.m. and he hires these people and says, I'll pay you a day's wage. That's the fair wage, of course. So they go and they labor. Three hours later, he comes back at 9 a.m. and has some more guys come and join. He comes back at noon and at 3 and then at 4 p.m., 5 p.m., one hour left before quitting time around 6, he comes and gets some more laborers. So now it's time to pay up. So the foreman lines everybody up and The landowner says, hey, go ahead and put them in reverse order. Go ahead and he's teaching us, right? Go ahead and put the last ones first in line and they get the day's wages, which is what they agreed to. That's what was fair. The dude in the back of the line starts doing the math in his head. and He's like, holy smokes. I worked like 11 times, 12 times longer than that guy. This is going to be amazing. And then it gets to him and he gets the same wage. And he's outraged by that. Okay, parables are provocative stories that you're meant to put yourself inside to teach you deep things about spiritual realities. So so as I tell that story, I wonder where you found yourself. Where where were you in that hiring category? When did you come on the team? Were you like first pick? Of course, right? You're always first pick. You've always been first pick. Okay, maybe not first. That's my big sister or my big brother. I'm always second. So I'm in the next round. I bet you very few of you found yourself in that last group where Jesus said, why are you still here? And they said, nobody wanted us. People came to get day laborers and nobody chose us. Nobody wanted us. I bet you, you didn't put yourself in that last category as you think about what you're owed and how you would fit into this workforce, this company, this team, this story. What Jesus wants to say to us is that actually all of us are in that last category. And everything we've received is actually by God's grace. This parable teaches us about God's extravagant grace, about, about Him choosing people, Him calling all kinds of people to Himself. It teaches us about, about His generosity, the text says, and it teaches us a ton about ourselves. Jump down to verse 10 of chapter 20. He, he says, "This Now when those who had been hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Our insatiable ability to overestimate what we can actually contribute and accomplish, this exposes. They just imagined they would receive more. They, they're owed more. They're entitled to more. But each of them just got the same denarius. And on, on receiving it, they, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, the last worked only one hour and you've paid them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the heat and the scorching heat. This is not fair, God. We find ourselves in situations where we look horizontally to people and we compare ourselves, which can only go to one of two places, to pride because you're doing better or to shame because you're not doing as well. In that space, as these people kind of come to terms with what's going on, we see our ability to make God answer to us. Far from breaking up with the other lover and moving towards the only true God that could rescue us, Far from going to God for what is impossible, we tend to hold Him in contempt for what we have that we deserve or what we don't have that we need. And until He gives us what we think we need, whether that's relationally or economically, positionally, whatever status you want to throw out there, until we get it, we hold Him in contempt as not worthy of being followed. Jesus is saying actually in this text what's so profound for us Is that everything you receive, you receive? Everything that you would leverage as your firstness, he actually is the one that gave that to you. All the denariuses come from him. He's the one who has all the money. He gives everything out to everyone. So even the thing that they're frustrated with, what they have, even that is a means of grace. To come into the kingdom, we have to declare bankruptcy even on the things that we think we've earned or deserved. We love a rags-to-riches story, but those are not grace stories. They're not gospel stories. The rags-to-riches story is actually what we see in the next chapter here where Jesus had all the wealth, took on the rags to give us his wealth. It's a reverse story. The gospel story is a reverse story. Story. the correction that we have to see here is that everything we have has been given to us by God. And because of that, he declares Lord over all of it. There's nothing in the universe by which Jesus doesn't stand over and say, Mine. And you're like, well, maybe not. Maybe not this one part. Maybe not my future. Maybe not. He says, it's all mine. Which lets you declare bankruptcy on what he gave you Anyway. This is the impossibility of grace. Even the things that you thought you could leverage, those things come from God, and he welcomes you to himself, paying all of it on himself to give you lavishly what you most need that you could not earn on your own, which is why he closes with this next little scene. This whole thing happens. They're begrudging. They're frustrated. He says, isn't it, isn't it right for me to do what I want to with what I have? And at the space that we're like, I don't know, man. I think you should do it the way I want you to do it, Jesus. He says, well, the last will be first and the first will be last. And then the most first one, the preeminent one of all of the universe, the most first one becomes last. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver me over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and I will rise again on the third day. The most first one becomes most last so that you might enter into the kingdom. And what you get to declare bankruptcy on is stuff you never had possession of to begin with. The lie we heard in the garden is that we could acquire something on our own to make us somehow more powerful, less dependent, the whole lie of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is is you shouldn't be dependent. You should know more, have more, do more. We've been hearing that lie for so long it just sounds normal. And into that lie of is God actually trustworthy? Is he actually good? Is he actually generous? Does he know what he's doing? Is he actually leading the world the way he should? Because my life is falling apart. My marriage is really hard. This addiction won't shake. Things at my work don't get better. Is he actually running the universe the way he's supposed to? And into that question, we see the most first one. Running the universe from himself at the most desperate center where he took what we deserved so he could give us what he always had, righteousness and the kingdom of God. There's two ways of coming, one dependent and one thinking you could contribute something. That one leads to bankruptcy. And saying that now allows you to declare bankruptcy and run to Jesus. Jesus. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? With this idea that the most first one became last on your behalf, we prepare our hearts to take communion. Would you just audit yourself right now in a space where you examine where are you with these things? What's happening inside of you? And would you take Jesus at his word that what feels impossible to you is possible with him, Because he died in your place to make a way for you to be rescued and forgiven. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the good news of the gospel. Would love to talk with you more after the service about that. If you are a follower of Jesus, in a moment when you come and take communion as a symbol of that, remember as you taste that juice that's soaked on that bread, representing the broken body and shed blood, that Jesus did what you could not do and made a way for you to come into the kingdom. This is the good news. Come with hearts full. Sing. Sing with hearts full. And build your life on this. When we take communion, we tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. There will be servers in all the rows, gluten-free here in the front. It's for Christians who are following Jesus. So if that's you, I invite you to come. If that's not you, stay in your seat and pray. Let me just pray over us. Jesus, we ask now for help to believe you. And for the things that we're wrestling with right now, the enemy is telling us it's impossible. Would you speak over us this good gospel word that with you, What we couldn't do is actually possible because you did it for us on our behalf. Free us with that reality now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I come when you're ready.